Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte. But for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month. And you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn stores make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Josh Powell's wife, Susan Powell, had been missing for days when he packed up and moved his sons to another state. When the police started closing in on him, he destroyed the final piece of evidence that would prove his guilt. This is Monsters. This is part two of the Josh Powell story. If you haven't watched or listened to part one, you'll want to go back and check that episode out first. When we left off, Josh had packed up and moved himself and his sons to Puyallup, Washington. We're going to back up a few days and talk in more detail about some of the things that were happening in the time immediately after Susan's disappearance. Josh had agreed to an interview with police, but he offered no help in finding his wife. In the days that followed, he became uncooperative with authorities and investigators witnessed strange behavior by him. During this time, Susan's friends and family had launched a massive search for the missing woman. They passed out flyers in town and at events. They created a website and offered a reward. Josh actually helped in this effort at first, but it was short-lived. Police went out to the area where Josh said he made a campfire but couldn't find any evidence that anyone had camped there. On December 10, 2009, just two days after Susan went missing, Josh talked to a reporter about Susan. I've been trying to figure out what I can do so I don't sit idle. Um, dealing with this repeatedly. Sure. Um, I was just going to go in and get my kids because, you know, they're... How, how are family. they? How are they doing? Um, they've been doing good, uh, as far as I can tell. How about you? I mean, I know this is difficult on you. How are you doing? I mean, this is such—it's got to be a lot of uh, emotions going on for you. Um, you know, people have been really helpful and supportive, so it's been—it's uh, been really hard, but. You know, you just keep going. What, what can you tell us about that night? I mean, um, from what we understand, you went camping and then came home. Well, tell us what, what happened that night. Yeah, I just, I, a lot of times I just go camping with my boys. You know, not, not anything big. I just go overnight and, you know, we do s'mores and stuff like that. And so I just went with the boys. I was planning to do some s'mores in the morning and um, 
that we did, and then when we got home, um, well, on the way home, I found out that people were worried about us and we were missing. The reporter asked him the standard questions about what happened the night Susan went missing, and Josh gives him the same answers he's given to everyone else. He doesn't seem upset. The reporter asks him an important question. Does she have any enemies that you can think of that would... I don't... I can't think of anyone. Yes, she did, Josh. You. Obviously, in cases like this, and you know this, that the, the, they instantly talk about the husband. They think that he's the suspect, that he did something. Is there anything you want to say to address that? Um, I... I didn't do anything. I mean, I... I don't know where she's at. I, I don't even know where to start looking. And the boys, I mean, do, how do you, what do you tell them about them all? I haven't told them anything. I mean, they've overheard stuff, but I haven't, I mean, by the time it all started, I, I was already, uh, You know, it was already late and went to bed. Well, you've been hectic ever since. Now, your wife laid down that night, right? She wasn't feeling well, is that? And then you just, and that's when you you, you went camping, right? Where'd where'd you guys go camping? Well, she she wasn't not feeling well. She was feeling well. Um, But she just went to bed. About five-ish, is that what we heard? We heard five. I don't know if that's true. You you would know better than we would. No, she went to bed that night. It was late when I got home and found my wife was missing, so I went to bed. I was famished. He's also quick to correct the reporter that Susan wasn't feeling ill. In part one, family friend Giovanna said that Susan started feeling ill after eating the pancakes that Josh had made her. In his police interview, he said that she was tired and took a nap that afternoon. Josh is not quick to answer any question that this reporter asks him, but as soon as he mentions Susan didn't feel well, Josh corrected him right away. Part of his master plan for getting rid of his wife had already started to creep into public knowledge. On December 14th, Josh hired defense attorney Scott C. Williams, who was scheduled to join him for another interview with the West Valley Police the following day, but Josh didn't show up. Police announced that Josh skipped the meeting and told the public that they felt like he was now getting in the way of the investigation. When police took the Powell van into their custody to search it, they also put a GPS tracker on it. This would have been helpful to know where Josh had gone when he rented a car and put 807 miles on it, but they didn't have any luck there. What police did see was Josh supposedly taking bags of garbage and dumping them at different dumpster locations around the city. On December 14th, he drove from his house to an apartment building about 10 minutes south, spent about a minute parked next to a dumpster, and then drove back home. On December 16th, he drove from his home to the Flatiron Mesa Park in Sandy, Utah, where he spent two minutes in front of a pair of dumpsters. Then he drove north and circled a Walgreens parking lot, but didn't stop. He drove through downtown Salt Lake City and then stopped at the parking lot of Poplar Grove Park for 12 minutes. There were multiple garbage cans throughout the parking lot. On December 18th, Josh drove to the Mountain America Credit Union and withdrew cash from Susan's final paycheck. Then he made two stops at the same dumpster at a strip mall in West Valley City about 25 minutes apart before returning home. Just minutes later, at 10.29 p.m., Josh left the house on Sarah Circle and began driving northwest toward Puyallup, Washington, where he claimed he was visiting family for the holidays. There are no mentions of anything being recovered from the dumpsters after Josh was recorded going to them. When asked, the West Valley City Police Department stated that that didn't mean the dumpsters weren't searched, but they probably weren't. Police had already searched Josh's house and his van, so I think that it's likely that they thought there wasn't anything of value that he could have been throwing away. Even so, they should have searched every dumpster and garbage can he went to, because what if he was disposing of crucial evidence? And to play devil's advocate, he may have just been stopping at all of those places just to make it look like he was throwing away evidence to waste the investigator's time. 
While driving to Washington, the GPS tracker showed that Josh stopped at the number 20 exit in northern Utah about two hours north of West Valley City. He parked near a fence, sat there for six minutes, and then got back on the freeway. At 1.44 a.m., the GPS said he pulled over onto the shoulder of I-84 in rural Idaho and sat there for 10 minutes. Seven minutes later, he pulled over again near the Milder Gooding Canal and stayed there for five minutes before continuing on the journey. Was he dropping evidence? If so, where did it come from? Did the police miss it? Did Josh have someplace else he was storing the evidence? Or did he know that the police had a tracker on the van and was just sending them on a wild goose chase? Their questions we'll never be able to answer. All the places that Josh stopped fell within the radius he would have been able to travel when he rented the Ford Focus. If he put 807 miles on the car, then he would have been able to travel 403.5 miles in any one direction. That meant he could have driven to most places in Utah besides the very south end, the southeast corner of Idaho, the southwest corner of Wyoming, and the northeast corner of Nevada. That's a massive amount of space to cover. On January 6th, 2009, in part one I said January 8th, but that was incorrect. Almost exactly one month since Susan had gone missing, Josh and his brother Michael went to West Valley City to pack up the house and Josh moved permanently to Puyallup. Neighbors actually volunteered to help Josh pack up. Not because they supported him or because they wanted him to leave, just because they were friendly, neighborly people. While helping him pack, there were five-gallon buckets in the garage that he wouldn't let anyone go near besides himself and Michael. One of his neighbors, a woman named Wendy Trujillo, noticed some stains on the floor in the kitchen. When she brought it up to Josh, he responded, quote, Oh, it's blood. I better clean it up before the cops get here, end quote. At another point in the day, Josh joked to her that he had loaded Susan's head into the moving truck. He even went as far as to ask if she heard him when she didn't respond. Hilarious. Josh lived at Steve's house with his two boys, his brothers, John and Michael, and his sister, Alina. These would be the only four adults who would continually support Josh throughout his legal problems. His mother, Terika, would stay quiet through most of the case, though she did say once she thought he was a good father. Josh returned to West Valley City one more time at the end of January to make some repairs to the house and get it ready to rent out. Not long after Josh moved to Puyallup, a website at susanpowell.org launched where Josh was described as a, quote, loving father and husband, end quote. The site explained that Josh liked to take his wife out to dinner or watch movies with her. The website also had a page titled, Mormons Mobilize Against the Powell Family. The page starts off by saying, quote, SusanPowell.org is a positive and uplifting site to spread the word about Susan and her family in the wake of this tragedy. We believe SusanPowell.org is doing a great deal in the search effort as it's keeping public interest alive. Every page published has been totally positive, and yet every single page has been criticized by individuals claiming to be Susan's friends and family. Their venom leaves people asking what is the real reason for their animosity towards Josh and his entire family and extended family, end quote. The page then goes on to explain how the Mormon church is campaigning to keep pressure on Josh because he moved in with Steve, who is an ex-Mormon. It says that once people who had been friends with Josh found out about that, they suddenly remembered things about him that weren't true. This was all due to the Powell family not maintaining their Mormon views anymore, not because there was a mountain of circumstantial evidence against Josh. I also find it strange when people have to advertise how good they are themselves. I mean, this website was supposedly created by someone anonymously, but I think we all know who wrote it. It's like when I see a commercial for Walmart that's not advertising any product or service. The only purpose of the commercial is to explain how much their employees like working there. It seems suspicious. This website makes it obvious that the only people who think the Powells are good people are the Powells, which just makes it seem that much worse. This was part one in the Powells' master plan to get the heat off of Josh. The second part came on the one-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance. Steve and Josh Powell came forward claiming that Susan was alive and had run off with a man named Steve Kocher. 
Steve Kocher was a 30-year-old man from Utah who also went missing on December 13, 2009, one week after Susan disappeared. Stephen had graduated with a degree in communications from the University of Utah and had worked for a couple of publications in the Salt Lake City area until the middle of 2008, when he moved to St. George, Utah, in the southwest corner of the state. He was happy to be in an area with warmer winters, but was struggling to find a full-time job. His family said that he was behind on his rent, and his mother said she put some money in his bank account to help him out, but it was never used. Stephen was last seen on a surveillance camera parking his car in a residential area in Henderson, Nevada. At 11.54 a.m., Stephen can be seen on a home security camera on Savannah Springs Avenue in Sun City, a retirement community in southern Henderson. His Chevy Cavalier can be seen driving down the street to the end of the cul-de-sac. Then, six minutes later, he can be seen walking down the street, back the way he had came from. Authorities say it looks like he has something in his hand, like a folder or portfolio. He can be seen on another surveillance camera on an adjacent street continuing to walk down the road. That's the last time Stephen is ever seen. About five hours after he walked by those cameras, his cell phone pinged more than 10 miles or 16 kilometers northeast of where he had parked his car. Two hours later, it pinged again at a tower about 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers further north. On the morning of December 13th, Stephen's cell phone pinged again at a tower another 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers north. Stephen's landlord sent him a text, and then an hour later, the voicemail was checked in the same area. The phone stayed there for two more days before either being shut off or more than likely running out of battery. Stephen's family didn't know why he was in the Las Vegas area that day, but they assumed he was there looking for a job. If he was holding a folder or portfolio in the surveillance video, that would make sense. He most likely has a resume and some sample clippings of his previous journalism work. His family said he looks normal in the video, he seems to know where he's going, and doesn't look confused or under the influence. It seemed as though he was planning to come back to Utah. When his car was recovered, he had Christmas gifts in it that he had purchased for his brother and his family. They also found job applications and flyers from his current part-time job. At his apartment, nothing was out of place and all of his clothes were still there. There was no activity on his bank account after his disappearance besides one automatic deduction made by an online web hosting company. People online began suggesting that disappearances of Susan and Stephen were connected merely due to timing, proximity, and the fact that they were both Mormon which may be strange for two people from, say, Mississippi, but not for two people from Utah. That was it, but that was all Stephen needed to see his opportunity to clear his son's name. Not only did this appear on the SusanPowell.org website, but Stephen Powell sent a seven-page letter to police and FBI detailing his belief that Susan and Stephen had absconded together. He claims that Susan had recently wanted to learn Portuguese and that Stephen had done missionary work in Brazil, so he believed that they had run away together to Brazil. He claimed that she was a bad mother who Josh had to rescue the boys from on multiple occasions. He said she would have had no problem leaving her children so she could start over. He said he believed she was already pregnant with Stephen's baby and that she had to leave when she did because she was starting to show. He then went on to tell the police and FBI how to do their jobs by telling them to go to Brazil in person and talk to Mormon church leaders there, check flights from Mexico City to Brazil, and to check Stephen's car for Susan's DNA. One of the specific claims that Steve made in his letter was that Stephen Kocher had his passport with him when he disappeared from Henderson, Nevada. That's not true. His passport was found in his apartment in a clothing drawer. International travel records were checked because Stephen had obtained the passport not long before his disappearance, but none was found. There was no record of Susan ever having a passport. I will read the entire letter and put the audio on my podcast host if you want to hear the entire thing. It should be up within the next few days, and there will be a link in the video description. We'll be right back. The, the answer it would be Josh's vindication. We would move on. They had Susan. They maybe had Stephen Kosher, uh, whom we think she's with. We think they, I still believe that's a possibility. But we thought that would be the end of it. We thought they had them down there, and they were just going down to pick them up. They had, Maybe they had to get an extradition or order of some kind, and 
from Nevada and then they, you know, Friday morning they'd have a big announcement for us and we'd all move on and live happily ever after. It just didn't happen. We're, we're really disappointed. So your belief is she's alive, she's with Oh, someone. yeah, we believe that. We believe she's alive. We believe she left with somebody. We're not sure if she's still with that somebody, but I don't know. She probably is. Steve went on the news to announce his family's belief that Susan was with Stephen and seems to be under the impression that the police were going to go pick them up and Josh would be in the clear. It's unknown where he got that idea. There's no doubt in my mind that Steve Powell knew that Josh killed Susan and disposed of her body, so I don't think for a second that he believed that Susan had run away with Stephen Kocher. I think Steve is a pathological liar, and when he saw internet chatter about the coincidental disappearances around the same time, he did what Steve Powell does and made up a crazy story. On top of there being no evidence that ever connected Susan with Stephen, two people going missing around the same time from the same state isn't insane. In just the time from November 1st, 2009 to January 31st, 2010, over a hundred people were listed as having gone missing in the U.S. This is on the NamUs website, which is the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. These are people who have been missing for a longer period of time. Thousands of people get reported missing every day in the United States, but 99% of them turn up within the first 24 hours. The people listed on the NamUs website are only there if they're still missing. So, over 100 people went missing in the months around Susan's disappearance who are still missing. Out of those people, there are 54 people aged 20 through 40. People in California, Arizona, Colorado, Montana. Susan could have met anybody on the internet who lived anywhere in the country. It's a pretty lame theory, and sadly, it seems as though Stephen Kocher may have been lured somewhere on the promise of possible employment and became the victim of another monster. I hope I'm wrong, and either way, I hope his family can get some closure someday. Most of Josh's immediate family supported him throughout Susan's disappearance, except for one of his sisters, Jennifer Graves. She was there when Susan went missing. She was at the house on Sarah Circle when Josh came home Monday evening with his sons. She saw firsthand Josh's lame story for why he had been gone, and more importantly, she saw his lack of concern for his missing wife. Near the end of January of 2010, Jennifer's husband was scheduled to fly to Seattle for work, and she decided to go with him and try to get a recording of Josh confessing. She talked to Detective Maxwell about the idea, and he worked with the Pierce County Sheriff's Office to make sure they got a warrant that would make it legal for Jennifer to record Josh without his knowledge. On January 22nd, Jennifer went to the Pierce County Sheriff's Office and got wired up, and then she went to her father's house under the pretense of visiting family. This was something that Jennifer said probably raised red flags with the rest of her family. Their relationship was strained, and her just deciding to visit out of the blue probably seemed unusual to them. After they ate dinner, Jennifer found an opportunity to get Josh into the den and close the doors so she could speak to him in private. She told him that she had heard rumors that he was going to be arrested soon and encouraged him to take a plea deal. Josh said that that was ridiculous, but she told him that he would go to prison for years and wouldn't be able to see his boys. He could get out sooner if he took a plea deal. Then she asked him about where he went in the rental car. What, what's up with all this? this you know, what, what wandering around, they, they think that, that you were going for hundreds of miles on Tuesday. Where were you going with that? Tuesday night, that night after you got the rental car? You were talking about that? Where did you go? He claimed that he just rented a car and drove around. He racked up 807 miles in a car without actually going anywhere. She tried to plead with him to just tell her what happened. So what happened? 
My attorney told me that don't talk about it. Sometimes that's specific. Okay, about your attorney, Josh. What happened? What happened that night? I've already told. You know, I sat down with the cops. I told them everything. Josh will not budge. He claims he told police everything he knows, and that's it. She accuses him of abandoning his wife by picking up and moving to another state when Susan had only been gone for a month. Unbeknownst to Jennifer, Michael had followed them to the den and was listening from the other side of the door. Michael would say in a later interview that that was standard procedure for people who were in their house that they didn't trust. Because the Powell family was like a little mini-cult. They only trusted each other, besides Jennifer, and they believed that any time someone said something bad about them, it was some grand conspiracy to smear the good Powell name. Michael eventually reported the conversation to Steve, who went into the den and told Josh he needed to go pick up a cake for the boy's birthday party. As Josh tried to leave, Jennifer managed to push him into the bathroom and close the door where she got more aggressive. She told him that he should just confess. I think you just need to confess now and get it over with. Don't be ridiculous. I've told you already. I, I see it in your face, Josh. I can see it in your face. I don't know what to say because I've already told you. Everything I've seen and now this. Just I don't know what you mean and now this. And now this in your face. I don't know what to say, but I'm going to go do what I'm going to do and go get ready for the party. Josh continued to deny everything and left to pick up the cake. When Jennifer came into the living room, she told her father that Josh better enjoy his freedom while it lasted. When Steve asked her what she meant, she said it was pretty obvious. Uh, Excuse me? It's not obvious to me. Right. When you choose to be blind to something, it tends to be less obvious. Maybe obvious to you, but you, you might imagine things. And you've always had a hard time with reality. That's a reality in your case. I don't know what you're talking about. Hard time is my reality. Yeah, you 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 need to face reality. Okay. Yourself in I'll your own way. Reality. Yeah. Let's see. Josh went camping in the night, and we didn't see. Hmm. That doesn't sound like reality. Unless you did something. Yeah. Anyway, why don't you? You know, I think I think it's time to. To go. I think it's time to go. I'm kind of worn out. You're welcome. Yeah. Steve acts all surprised that Jennifer thinks Josh is guilty. I don't know why. It didn't seem to be a secret, especially his big song and dance about what Josh could possibly be arrested for. Like that was some mystery. Even if he believed Josh had nothing to do with the disappearance of Susan, he still knew he was being investigated for it. He still knew that Josh was the prime suspect. Josh might be arrested? Wherever did you hear this, poppycock? Give me a break. The confrontation turns into a big argument between multiple family members. Josh's youngest sibling, Alina, was an aggressive defender of both Josh and her father, Steve, even after mounds of evidence were taken from their home. It would seem that she was brainwashed by Steve her whole life. Not long after the Powells announced their belief that Susan had run off with Stephen Kocher, they also announced that they were going to start publishing Susan's personal journals from when she was a teenager. Journals that Josh went to great lengths to ensure that he kept during the move and that the Coxes didn't get their hands on. This set off a legal battle that lasted quite a while, during which police in West Valley City conducted multiple searches in areas around Utah and Nevada. They searched abandoned mine shafts around Nevada, but after two days of searching, they came up empty-handed. They also searched an area in Utah that's popular with people who collect gems. Also during this time, authorities learned that Steve Powell had a strange obsession with his daughter-in-law. They also learned that Michael had sold his car, a Ford Taurus, to a scrapyard in Oregon shortly after Susan's disappearance. 
When they finally located the vehicle, cadaver dogs hit on the trunk, indicating that there had been a dead body there at some point. DNA tests from the trunk were inconclusive. Authorities also got a warrant to wiretap Josh's cell phone, Steve's cell phone, and the home phone at the Powell house. During that time, Josh mentioned the rental car multiple times but always remained vague about where he went. When Josh mentioned Topaz Mountain in Utah, police organized a search but were unsuccessful at finding anything. The wiretaps did reveal the level of paranoia that the Powells had been living with. Not only did Steve and Josh have multiple conversations about the giant conspiracy against them by the Mormon church to have the police investigate them, but Josh even believed someone had cut his brakes. When he saw liquid dripping under his van, he took it to a mechanic thinking someone was trying to do him in, but the mechanic informed him that it was just condensation from the AC unit. In one call, Josh told his father that he had considered suicide, but he was afraid that Jennifer would gain custody of his sons and raise them Mormon. He also told Steve that he wouldn't go to prison where he wouldn't be able to kill himself. It seems that these remarks are the beginnings of Josh's plan to escape prison with suicide and take the boys with him so they aren't raised by his sister. On August 24, 2011, Josh finally did an interview to discuss what happened to Susan. Why take your two young sons camping after midnight, freezing cold temperatures? Well, we just go out and do things that are fun. But it's after midnight. You know, shouldn't your sons be sleeping? Weren't they sleeping? People who know me know that Time is hard for me to keep track of. I tend to be spontaneous. I do things in the spur of the moment. Why not call work the next morning to say, hey, I was out camping, I'm not going to be in today? To be honest, Saturday was a blur. I was convinced it was still Saturday. He doesn't say anything new. He sticks to his story. He took the boys camping because he's just that spontaneous of a guy, and he had his days mixed up. He's been telling that story for so long that he probably believed it by then. The strange thing about that interview was that his father, Steve, insisted on also being interviewed, and this is what he said. Susan was uh, very, very sexual with me. She was very flirtatious. I mean, I'm, I'm her father-in-law, and uh, she, she would do a lot of things that, that um, I mean, she was just, she did it. I did. I mean, we we interacted in a, a lot of sexual ways because Susan enjoys doing that. Do you think a part of you started falling in love with Susan? That's pretty likely. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I would say so. And and I, and and there's no question in my mind that the feelings were mutual. Steve Powell is in a full-on fantasy land about his relationship with Susan. Even though a few people who were close to Susan knew about Steve's strange obsession with her this was the first time it was being announced to the world. This is another reason that I think Steve knows that Susan is dead. Now that he knows she's not around to deny his claims, he can say whatever he wants. I think he's been dying to tell the world about how he and Susan were in love from the minute he found out that Josh had killed her. He could go out and tell everyone that she loved him and she would never be able to deny it. I believe he wanted to publish her journal and add stuff to it to make it seem like she was in love with him. He was obsessed with Susan and would do anything to keep that fantasy alive. On August 25, 2011, police from both Utah and Washington served a search warrant on Steve Powell's house in Puyallup. They seized computers and storage drives, boxes of videotapes, and photographs from the house that Steve Powell shared with John, Michael, Alina, Josh, Charlie, and Brayden. They also confiscated all of Susan's journals. When police went through the evidence, they realized that what they had heard about Steve's infatuation with Susan was only the tip of the iceberg. During the search, which was conducted by West Valley City Police in an effort to uncover evidence regarding Susan's whereabouts, Authorities found thousands of voyeuristic pictures, many of which were of Susan and were clearly taken without her knowledge. Not only that, but he had hours of video that he had taken both with and without Susan's knowledge. He would videotape everything, so when the family was all together, he would have the camera out and nobody would think anything of it. 
But upon reviewing the recordings, he would zoom in on Susan, leaving everyone else out of the shot. He would even specifically zoom in on her boobs or her butt. Not only that, but he would make these video diaries about things like giving Susan a massage and how much they both enjoyed it. He would videotape himself going through her dirty laundry and rubbing her underwear on his face. He would use a mirror to try to get shots of her from under the door in the bathroom. He even would collect things of her from the garbage, like cotton swabs and tampons. He would put them in plastic bags and label them. The man was an absolute predator. And that became even more clear when police found pictures that Steve had taken of two neighbor girls in their bathroom with a telephoto lens. The girls were 7 and 10 years old at the time. We'll be right back. On September 22, 2011, Steve Powell was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography. He pleaded not guilty, but was held in jail while he awaited his trial. At the same time, the judge deemed the Powell home not a safe place for children and had Charlie and Braden put into protective custody. Chuck and Judy Cox petitioned for custody of the boys and won. Now, Charlie and Braden would live with them, with Josh having supervised visitations. This was not an acceptable situation for Josh. Not only had he lost his sons, but they were now living with the Coxes. To Josh, they were the enemy. During this time, Josh underwent a number of psychological evaluations in preparation of the upcoming custody hearing regarding the future of Charlie and Brayden. The psychiatrist determined that Josh had adequate parenting skills and no criminal record or history of domestic violence, which was good, but the ongoing criminal cases against him and his father were not a healthy environment for the boys. One of the conditions he had in order to regain custody of his sons was to get his own house. A custody hearing was scheduled for January 19, 2012, and Josh had created a website that claimed that Chuck and Judy Cox abused Charlie and Braden a few days before that. On January 31st, Google actually shut down the site because it violated their terms of service. On February 1st, 2012, Josh arrived at court for another custody hearing, and the people around him say he seemed very confident that he would be leaving the hearing with his boys. He had rented a house and gotten everything in order to ensure his own success at winning back his sons. The previous day, police in West Valley City said they found hundreds of cartoon images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest on a computer that was owned by Josh. They sent the images to the courts in Washington, and they used those images to order Charlie and Braden to remain in the custody of the Coxes. They also ordered Josh to undergo a psychosexual evaluation. A psychosexual evaluation includes having a band put onto a man's penis which measures arousal based on different sexual stimuli. It also requires that the subject take a polygraph test. The West Valley police had essentially backed Josh into a corner. He already knew that he wouldn't go to prison, and he wouldn't allow his boys to be raised by his sister, and I imagine having them raised by the Coxes was a similarly unacceptable outcome. Now he was being forced to take a polygraph test where they would most definitely ask about Susan's disappearance. The worst part about the story is that the images that were recovered from one of Josh's computers were not his images. The West Valley City Police were well aware of that. One of the computers that was taken from the Powell home on Sarah Circle back in 2009 had been purchased by Susan secondhand. The recovered images were cached on a hard drive from before she purchased the computer. The images were also not illegal since they were all cartoons and none of them showed any real people engaging in sexual activity. The West Valley police knew all of this, but they misled the court in Washington, making them believe that the images might have been Josh's. In doing this, they pushed Josh to a place that he thought there was only one way out of. On February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall was taking Charlie and Braden to their supervised visit at Josh's house in South Hill, Washington. Josh had been having his supervised visitations at a secure location, but he had petitioned the court to allow them to happen at his house since he moved out of his father's house. The court granted his request. As the boys got out of Elizabeth's car, they ran up to the front door like any child would who's excited to see their father. Before Elizabeth could make it to the door, Josh pulled the boys inside and locked the door. 
She banged on the door and rang the doorbell, but he wouldn't open it. Then she smelled gas. Hey, I'm on a supervised visitation for a court-ordered visit, and something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house, and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119, and I, I think it's 89th. Um, I, I don't know what the address is. Okay. That's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can, if I can find it. I'm, this, nothing like this has ever happened before at um, these visitations, so I'm really um, shocked. And I could hear one of the kids crying, but he still wouldn't let me in. Okay, it is uh, one... Oh, just a minute, I have it here. You can't find me by GPS? No. This 911 dispatcher got a lot of flack for the way he handled this call, which he should have. He was given a letter of reprimand for his handling of the call and admitted himself that he was clumsy while responding to the caller. After re-listening to the call, he said, quote, It was horrible. This has been a nightmare. End quote. That's an understatement. But I think I need help right away. He, he's on a very short lease with CSHS, and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. It's 8119-189th Street, Court East, 2 Alec, 98375. And I'd like to pull out of the driveway because I smell gasoline, and he won't let me in. You want to pull out of the driveway because you smell gasoline, but he won't let I you... Smoke. He, he won't let me in. He won't let you out of the driveway? He won't let me in the house. Whose house is it? He's got the in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. <laughs> Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't... No, okay. I'm contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. Okay. And, and who is there to exercise their visitation? I am, uh, and the visit is with Josh Powell, and, who's and he is the husband that I supervise. So you supervise, and you're doing the visit. Yeah, you're I supervise yourself. I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself. If you're the I visitor, I do supervise myself. I'm the supervisor for the supervised visit. Okay. Well, aren't you the one make, Aren't you the one making the visit? Or is there another parent the one, that you're supervising? No. I'm the one that supervises. I pick up the kids with their grandparents. Yes. And then who visits with the children? Josh Powell. Okay, so you're supposed to be there to supervise Josh Powell's visit with the children. Yes, that's correct. Oh, come on. Have you no understanding of what a social worker does? You're a 911 operator. Have you never heard of a supervised visit before? Did you climb out of a cave at the center of the earth and immediately clock into a shift at the dispatch office? And the dad's last name? Powell, P-O-W-E-L, L. Two L's? Two L's at the end of Powell? Yes. His first name? His first name is Josh. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native? He's white. Date of birth? I don't know. He's about 39. How tall? Um, 5'10", 150 pounds. Hair color? Brown. Did you notice what he was wearing? No, I didn't notice what he was wearing. Is he alone then, or is anybody I don't know. I couldn't get in the house. Uh, are you in a vehicle now or on foot? I'm in a vehicle. I'm in a Prius, on, um, a 2010 Prius. What color with is the it? doors locked. But he won't, he hasn't opened the door. I rang the doorbell and everything. What, what color I is begged him to let me in. Elizabeth, please listen to my questions. What color is the Toyota Prius? Who gives a shit? Send help to the kids. I see a lot of people make comments about how 911 operators ask too many questions instead of sending help. The truth is, in most situations, the 911 operator does send help right away, and they spend the time they have on the phone waiting for first responders to arrive, asking as many questions as they can. 
That way, if the person on the phone loses consciousness or dies, they have more information about the situation. If medics get there and the patient is unconscious, the 911 operator will have relayed any information they got from the patient to the first responders. If a victim of a crime dies, the operator may have been able to get a description or even a name of the person responsible. So a lot of times, even though the operator is asking a lot of questions, they've already dispatched first responders and now they're just gathering as much additional information as they can. That is not the case here. This operator absolutely wasted time. It took eight minutes for the operator to actually dispatch first responders to the scene. Okay, how long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy... Well, this, could, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he, he didn't get his kids back. And this is really... I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right. We'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you. Bye. Surprise, surprise. It turned out to be a life-threatening situation. Hello? Hi, ma'am. Were you calling about the fire in the 8200 block? Of yes, he exploded at the house. Ma'am, yes, do you know the, the Okay, do you know the exact address of the house? Or are yes, you both? it's 8119-189th eight, eight Street, Court East, okay. two hours. Okay, stand line. Do you know if anyone's in the house? Yes, there was a man and okay. two children. I just dropped off the children, and he wouldn't let me in the door. Okay, stand line for the fire department. Okay, I'm going to get them on the line. Do not hang up. Hold on. Okay. Danny, go ahead with what you need. Thank, pass that on to my thank you very much, fire ma'am. What is your name, please? I'm Elizabeth Griffin Holland. I'm the supervisor. Okay, hold on. Okay, Elizabeth, hold on just a moment, ma'am. Okay, so your last name is Griffin what? Griffin Hall, G-R-I-F-F-I-N hyphen Hall, H-A-L-L. Okay. okay, so you're waiting down the street at 8112 109th Street Court, 189th Street Court East. Yes. Okay, and are you in your car? I was in my car. I'm standing outside it right now. Okay, is that your home? Is that your home address? No, that's not my home okay. address. I was the supervised visitation coordinator. I picked the children up. What is that person's name? His name is Josh Powell. Over the few days prior to this, Josh had spent his time preparing to remove himself and his sons from this world. He withdrew $7,000 from his bank, but it's unclear what he did with it. He collected Charlie and Braden's toys and took them to Goodwill. He purchased a number of five-gallon gas cans and filled them with fuel. On February 5th, he poured gasoline around the inside of the home and sent emails to friends and relatives saying goodbye. As soon as the boys got to his door, he pulled them inside and locked the door. Then he hit both boys with a hatchet to incapacitate them and lit the gasoline on fire. The entire house erupted in flames, killing Josh, Charlie, and Braden. It was so important to Josh that nobody proved that he murdered his wife, that he killed his own children. The entire situation outraged everyone. The authorities had failed Charlie and Braden by not arresting Josh when they should have. They failed Charlie and Braden when they lied about Josh having cartoon pornography on his computer. They failed Charlie and Braden when they allowed a loser who didn't give a shit about his job to be a 911 operator. And they failed Charlie and Braden when they put Josh's parental rights above their safety. Though Michael Powell moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota for graduate school, he wasn't able to escape police scrutiny. He was always suspected of being involved in the disappearance of Susan, and on February 11, 2013, he jumped from the roof of a parking garage and killed himself. On July 13, 2015, Steve Powell was found guilty of possessing child pornography and sentenced to five years in prison. He was released on July 11, 2017 and died in a hospital in Tacoma 12 days later. Karma? The two most likely people who might have had any information about where Susan's body is had taken their secrets to the grave. Police continued to search locations throughout Utah, Nevada, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington, but her body has never been found. The West Valley City Police Department eventually closed the case. Chuck and Judy Cox filed a wrongful death suit against the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services, but their initial efforts were dismissed. 
The United States Court of Appeals ruled that they could in fact pursue a wrongful death suit on January 10, 2019. In 2020, they won the wrongful death suit against the state and the jury awarded them $57.5 million for each child with $8,245,500 for each child being caused by Josh Powell, which the state wasn't responsible for, so the state would end up owing them just over $98 million. The Coxes said that they would use the money to help other children in need and hoped that it would set an example for the state to fix their broken social services system. Not likely. A few months later, a judge determined that the award was considered excessive and dropped the amount to $32.8 million, which is almost like the state saying, you're right, we don't value those kids. But that's just my opinion. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunnstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply.